Wyndham who? Wyndham Clark ekes out a U.S. Open victory for his first ever Grand Slam win. As for Rory McIlroy and Ricky Fowler, another tough pill to swallow as their respective droughts continue in winning a major. It was a wild few days in baseball as there are plenty of teams on unexpected hot and cold streaks that have changed the MLB landscape. The NBA draft is Thursday and there's been some wheeling and dealing in Phoenix as the Suns are close to acquiring Bradley Beal. Is that the right move? Of course, I'll also get into the suspension on Grizzlies guard John Morant. Was 25 games too much, too little, or just right? The sports world may be cooling off a bit as summer is just two days away, but that's not going to stop yours truly from putting together another fun-filled, entertaining, and informative hour of sports talk. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. We're just two days away from officially ushering in my favorite season of the year as summer awaits. Despite the turn with the NBA and NHL seasons concluding and not too much else going on, there are plenty of topics to chew on as I share my thoughts and analysis on this Juneteenth holiday as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even... As early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And as I mentioned, it is Juneteenth as the country honors this day, commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African Americans dating back to 1865. And because of this day, a lot of those early celebrations included rodeos, cookouts, street fairs, and even baseball. So sports played their part in putting this atrocity aside as best as they possibly could to Look at this day as one to be free in this country. And as we all know, over the last couple of years, it's become a federal holiday. So I would have been remiss if I didn't start off the pod mentioning that here this June 19th on a Monday. And on another note, this one being a programming note, there'll be no podcast on Thursday. I'll be in the Caribbean from the middle of the week through the weekend, but I'll be back next Monday as this is a good time for the sports universe to die down a little bit, and for me just to take a little respite, get some much-needed R&R as I'll recap 
the weekend and my getaway as I share a little bit of me with you guys and gals. I know this is predominantly sports and this is what you come for and I get it. But you know what? Your boy needs a blow. This will be the third podcast that I'll miss on a Thursday since I started doing twice a week dating back to April 7th of last year. So you know what? With everything that's gone on and listen, you know, even if I'm away, I would bring my equipment, so on and so forth. But with the wife and a couple of other friends, there's no way I'm going to do that. So I'll put my feet up and with the sports world being very quiet, thankfully for me, there won't be that much more catching up to do a week from today. But watch, so many things that happen over the course of the week. I understand the NBA draft. I'm sure there'll be a lot of trades and a lot of rumblings, rumors, etc. that will go down between now and then. And we're going to talk about the NBA later on as the draft is this coming Thursday. We know who the number one pick is going to be, but there's been a trade which hasn't been finalized as of yet. I'll get into greater detail about that. That surrounds Bradley Beal. But I want to start off with the golf because the third golf major tournament has come and gone. The U.S. Open there at the L.A. Country Club, which had a very interesting backdrop. Just to think that this golf course, which a lot of the players on the tour have barely walked it, let alone played it before this past Thursday. And just seeing the skyline and the buildings and having downtown L.A. as the backdrop Pretty much having this golf course in the middle of a metropolis, which is really strange. But at the same time, there was something about it that I loved. And I didn't watch every round or every minute, but I did tune in yesterday with the time difference, considering that you had the leaders at the top tee off around 530 here in the east, which was 230 out west. And for the way this tournament had unfolded. And with that backdrop of LA and having just the beautiful skies and the scenery, etc. But the three storylines that I take away from this, and yes, we could talk about various players and how things just fell apart for them, but to me, this revolves around three players. The champ, Wyndham Clark, the runner-ups being Rory McIlroy and Ricky Fowler, but I'm going to flip-flop those two and put Fowler second and McIlroy third, and I'll explain. Start off with Wyndham Clark. We know that his story's been remarkable. This is a guy that was ranked close to 300th on the official world golf ranking a year ago, this player was on nobody's radar heading into the weekend. And this is a guy that never finished better than 75th in a major championship. To be thrusted into the middle of this leaderboard with the aforementioned Fowler McElroy, and for him to not even blink and not even flinch is just stupendous when you think of a guy who, one more time, you couldn't pick out of a lineup, that nobody even heard of this guy going into the weekend. And here he was, cool, calm, and collected, making shots, being a part of the mix from pretty much start to finish. This wasn't a guy that came out of nowhere tournament-wise, where he was somewhere in the middle of the pack and then all of a sudden had a dominant Saturday and a dominant Sunday for him to hoist the trophy over his head. He was pretty much going toe-to-toe from the opening stroke. Now, granted, Fowler as well as Xander Shoffley, got off to historic starts, and I'll get to them in a second. But for Clark to be a part of the mix throughout, showed the type of metal, showed the type of steely, not only confidence, and having his mother, which was an interesting story too, a lot of the credit, thoughts, and tribute to his late mom, who passed away 10 years ago. And for him to be on this stage to perform the way he did and to, again, have that confidence 
and just felt like he belonged as he stated in the post-match interview, you have to give this guy just a thousand percent credit for him not folding, for him not succumbing to the pressure and the moment, and he was able to win the tournament by one stroke over Rory McIlroy, and I'm sure he probably hasn't slept a wink, but on the good side, and we'll get to the bad side in a minute for the other two players, but... What more can you say about a guy who, for the first time, or really I should say the fourth player over the past hundred years to win an Open the first time they made the cut? And the last person to do that was Lucas Glover back 13 years ago. And with everything that surrounded him and everything going into this final round, I won't even say the tournament, because again, I'm sure even the the die-in-the-wool golf aficionado would never have thought to put Wyndham Clark near the top or be a dark horse to win this tournament, let alone be in the tournament come Sunday. And as we saw there yesterday afternoon and pretty much throughout the whole weekend, the guy was unflappable. And who knows what this means for him moving forward. I understand there's this new celebrity that comes with winning a major tournament, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate to multiple Grand Slam tournaments for him or tournament wins. And we can only hope that it's going to be the case. He's 30 years old. He's a guy that's still relatively young. And who knows, if he just burst on the scene here to win his first major, and maybe this could be a precursor for things to come. Now listen, am I going to call him an all-time great? Or a guy that's going to be in the mix with the Scotty Schefflers, the John Roms, all the top golfers as we come to know and love? I'm not going to say that right now, but I will say that He has made himself a household name moving forward, whether he wins another tournament or not, because people are going to know who Wyndham Clark is. Now, granted, this isn't the Masters, but we know that this is the second of the four major tournaments. I know we could say the Open or the British Open has to maybe even be number one, considering the history and the hundred years of tradition, etc., that the British Open has provided over the last few centuries, let alone just hundred years But when we take a look at this past weekend, this was about Clark and him being victorious, the complete underdog, being able to stay the course, no pun intended, and not only that, but also for him to just keep himself in the moment, keep calm, and prevail with that first ever Grand Slam victory, and congratulations to him. Just a fantastic job, extraordinary to say the least, and I'm sure this is going to be life-changing for him. Now, how he's going to be able to translate it, like I mentioned, obviously that remains to be seen, but kudos to him and what he did over the weekend, pretty much from start to finish, by winning this tournament, and he 100% deserved it. The second storyline, to me, is Ricky Fowler, because as much as we could talk about Roy McIlroy, and he's number three, but at least Roy McIlroy has won majors. And I get it that it's been almost nine years since he won his last major and he's been this close several times over the course of the almost decade since he's last won. But Ricky Fowler, where a lot of people think that he is the one player and the one great player that has not won a major and one of the last few to see if he could get that piano off his back. And it sure looked like from his start on Thursday where he shot a 62 with Xander Shoffley that snapped the U.S. Open record for a round Just one round, not just an opening round, a round altogether. He shot a 62, and from that point on, it looked like this was going to be Fowler's tournament to lose. Now, we know that the players that were hanging around, the Harris Englishes of the world, of course, 
sprinkle in a little Xander Shoffley. And for Fowler, you would think that it was a two or three man race to see who was going to come out on top. And Fowler, throughout the course of the weekend leading into yesterday, you would think that maybe the pressure got to him. Maybe he shrunk a little bit, as evidenced by shooting three bogeys in the first seven holes. And then on hole eight, he was able to get a birdie to kind of put himself on track. And even though he was a couple of strokes behind, but still within striking distance, but what really killed him was at the start of the back nine, after shooting par on 10, he bogeyed both 11 and 12, and then that was it. He was six strokes behind, and excuse me, he was under six with four strokes behind the leader. At that point, I think it was five strokes behind Wyndham Clark, and that was it for him. He was toast. He was done. And again, this is a guy who... For the longest time, a lot of people think that he is the last great player to not win a major. And there's a few others that are out there, but people look at Fowler, especially with a lot of the early success that he had in coming close to winning major tournaments. But this one has to stick to his ribs because we haven't seen him at the top or near any of these leaderboards when it comes to these Grand Slam tournaments. He hasn't even been a factor or even a mention of him being, let's say, after the first couple of rounds that, oh, Fowler's in the mix. We're going to have to look to see if he's going to make a charge or if he's going to continue to stay on top. We haven't heard his name throughout the course of the last five, six, seven, maybe even ten years. And here he was yesterday with a great opportunity, granted that he had the slimmest of margins, and going into the final round yesterday, he was tied with Wyndham Clark, with Rory just a stroke behind the two of those guys. But still, for him to... Just not play well, especially in that first back nine. And that's going to be the key there because for him to shoot those bogeys, I believe it was on four, five, no, excuse me, on three, four, and seven before getting the birdie at eight. You kind of knew that his unraveling was just a matter of time. And even with him getting that birdie, you probably had a good feeling to think, all right, he's still hanging around and maybe he'll make a little bit of a charge. But what was that for? as I mentioned there on the second half of the back nine, by him getting those back-to-back bogeys, that was it. And it's just a shame because you want to see that great player win a major. It's almost as if the golf world will exhale, or at least the fans will. And he's going to have to wait until next month when he goes overseas at the Open to see whether or not that he could take some of this momentum, especially from the first three-plus rounds, to see if he could get himself in the mix to maybe even be at the top of the leaderboard come Sunday at the Open. And that's the only thing you can hope for if you're a Fowler fan or even Ricky Fowler himself because that yesterday, I'm sure he was unable to sleep a wink and this is on the bad side where I'm sure Wyndham Clark hasn't slept but he's still riding high off of that win yesterday. And then the third storyline is Rory because we've chronicled how that elusive next Major, considering it's been almost nine years, and I believe he's won a couple of U.S. Opens and a PGA. I think he's has two U.S. Opens, a PGA, and also an Open. He's not one of Masters, as we know, and he only has four majors in his back pocket. Well, yesterday he shot par on 16 of the holes. On the first hole, he actually shot a birdie, but the one that has kept him up all night is 14. And that was the one that doomed him big time because when you take a look at that hole and it was a par 5, his first shot off the 14th hole was in the rough 
All right, fine, no problem. His second shot, he actually got it on the fairway, so you're thinking, all right, pretty good. His third shot actually went into the bunker. But he did get a break because it was wedged at the bottom of the bunker. So he was unable to shoot it out of the sand trap. And it gave him a spot for him to drop the ball and then take a shot from there to approach the green. So you're thinking, all right, he's in decent shape. So his approach there was for him to try to, of course, get it near the hole, which he did. But then the ball started to tail a little bit to the right, which made it, I believe, almost 10 feet from the hole. And as we all know, historically, Rory's putter always seems to fail him at the worst possible times. And here he would have shot par. But what that was, a shot that just went a smidge to the right and was able to shoot a bogey. One more time. 16 pars, opening hole was a birdie, and he shot a bogey there on 14, where if he would have shot par, he would have had a playoff with Wyndham Clark, and who knows how that would have turned out. And McElroy, even in the post-match, the 14th hole, that's what got him, and not even just the bunker shot, or even the first shot off the tee, but they're going to look at that putt, because it was a makeable putt, he missed it by that much, and I get it that the approach where that shot started to veer a little bit right, where maybe if it just stood the line where it didn't veer toward the right, that he would have a closer shot and a better shot to sink that putt. But we all know, his putter is not reliable even from five feet. And I believe throughout the weekend, he was unable to make a putt from eight feet in. And you know what? Now that I think about it, maybe that shot was closer than 10 feet. I want to say it was about nine or so. And that's outside of 8 feet, of course. But the putter failed him from 8 feet and beyond. And with this one being just a little bit less than 10 feet, Rory wasn't able to sink that putt shot, which would have put him in a playoff when it was all said and done. And as it is, he walks away, second place, unable to get that major that he has not won since 2014. And he's another one that's going to be thinking, scratching his head as he makes his way over sees to the British where he's going to have to hope that momentum is going to carry him into that final major of the year, similar to Ricky Fowler, to see whether or not they could be near the top of the leaderboard or within striking distance on that final day where the golf season will, for all intents and purposes, conclude on that Sunday sometime in the middle of next month. And yes, I know you have the Ryder Cup there later on in the year, which is a pseudo-major, but... That's just a tough break for those two guys. And one more time, Wyndham Clark, what more can you say about him? Just an extraordinary performance with a heavy heart, etc. And for Fowler and Rory, this close. And if I'm saying that and I'm feeling it, I can't even imagine what those two guys are. So let's see as we crawl into the end of this month and into next month to see how those two will fare. And even Wyndham Clark for that matter, as I'm sure he's going to face a lot of scrutiny and a lot of attention Heading into next month's Open, and we will certainly discuss and see how that all shakes down come the middle of July. Now as I lace up my cleats, get in the batter's box, and talk a little baseball, and boy, what a wild weekend it was, especially in the National League, where you've had winning streaks abound, some surprising, some not so surprising, and some that are puzzling when you think about it, because I don't even know which direction I should go in. Because in each of the divisions, you've had some winning streaks that have really just jumped off the page where teams have now maybe even put themselves in the mix for a possible pennant chase throughout the summer 
when you're the Cincinnati Reds, when you're the San Francisco Giants, even the Miami Marlins that we've talked about here just a week ago. Those three teams that you would think had no business to be a part of this race, and granted, we're here in the middle of June, so a lot could happen, let alone throughout the summer, even by the time we get to July 4th. But boy, when we take a look at these streaks and what has taken place here, and I'll start with the NL East and I'll go down. Now, the Braves, they continue to roll. No surprise there. Atlanta just polished off Colorado, and they're now winners of six in a row. Remember, they swept the Tigers in the middle of the week. So we know the Braves, they're going to be, I feel at the end of the day, division winners. And that's not a shock considering where they're at. They're five games ahead of the Marlins as of right this moment. And we know that the Braves are loaded and they have a great farm system and just a team that is built not only for today, but really built for the next five to seven years. Now, granted, they still have to sign Max Fried, And with him being on the shelf with that injury, you would think that it would have been a death blow to maybe 20 of the other teams in Major League Baseball. But for the Braves, they don't miss a beat. They just bring up another guy from their farm system and plug him in and away they go. And the Braves are going to be off and running. And they have been off and running considering that they've been in first place pretty much from start to finish. The Marlins, I understand they may not be beating up the big boys on the block or the big teams. And they're going to face the Braves, I believe, this coming weekend. So that's going to be a series to look at here. But the Marlins, I understand they beat up on the Nationals. And yes, they did lose two out of three to Seattle. But they ride a four-game winning streak as they come back home. And this Marlins team, they must be doing it with smoke and mirrors. Now, I understand that they have some good young pitching. They have a very good bullpen. Their players day-to-day, I get it. Luis Arias, who cooled off a bit, but he did hit five for five, I believe, on Saturday. Or maybe it was yesterday. So now he's up to 390. And we talked about him flirting with 400 there. I believe it was last week or at least in the last couple of podcasts. But you got to give it up for the Marlins. They haven't folded. They haven't looked the team that has been pretty much their existence other than the two World Series teams of 97 and 2003. So give it up for what Skip Schumacher has done to this point. And let's see if the Marlins can continue this pace and continue to be as it is right now. Think about this. They are 10 games over 500. They are currently 41 and 31. Give them all the credit in the world. And even if they are doing it with smoke and mirrors, they're doing it a hell of a lot better than a lot of other teams in baseball. And even in their own division, when you look at the Mets, even the Padres in the NL West. And yes, when I look at the schedule, well, they actually have Toronto and Pittsburgh for four in Miami over the course of the next week. And it's the following week where they go to Boston for three and then Atlanta for three right into the 4th of July week. So that's something we'll pay attention to as we get closer to see whether they stack up against the Braves or not. And for the most part, they haven't. The Braves have killed them over the years, even going back to the pandemic year when they played each other in the postseason and the Braves polished them off in three games. So, but you got to give kudos to them and what they've done. And even the Phillies have woken up. The Phillies are currently on a six-game winning streak. They won the back three of four games in Arizona, which was a great job by them as they were on a West Coast trip, and then they went to Oakland and beat up on the A's, who have cooled off ever since that reverse boycott when they won seven in a row, beating the lights of the Rays, even the Milwaukee Brewers along the way. And since that night when they won that seventh in a row, where they had 27,000 out there, they lost a back two to the Rays in a four-game set, and then the three here to the Phillies. So now the Phillies are cooking with gas as they try to inch closer to the Marlins, and even the Braves for that matter, in the division, so you got to give it up to what the Phillies have done here lately, and let's see if they could turn on the Jets similar to what they did last year, 
before firing Joe Girardi, bringing in Rob Thompson. I believe they were, what, 22 and 29 or 22 and 27 before they took off, got themselves into the postseason, and of course, get, went to a game six in the World Series before losing to the Astros. So that's what we have with the winning streaks there. And in the Central, now the Brewers were stumbling, bumbling, fumbling to where we talked about them losing to the Oakland A's of all teams at home. And then they had the Pirates come into town over the weekend, which I thought was going to be more an interesting test for the Pirates than it would be for the Brewers because the Brewers at least have a little bit of a track record. The Pirates have been a bit of an unknown. And I think now, sad to say, that the Pirates, their ship is starting to sink. They get swept in Milwaukee. They're going to recall their top prospect and number one pick of 2021, Henry Davis. He's a catcher. And in hopes to see if they can save their season because now their ship has sprung a bunch of leaks. And who knows if we're going to hear from the Pirates. Now granted, they're two games under. They're two and a half games behind the Brewers. And I understand that this may be the beginning of the end. But just knowing that the Pirates were even discussing them here in the middle of June says a lot for what they've done. But I think it's run its course and their ship is now sinking to the bottom of the MLB ocean. And then you have the Cincinnati Reds. Where the hell has this winning streak come out of? To think that this team started off, I believe their year was what, 3-13? and And David Bell, the manager, looked like he was probably going to be the first guy fired out on a rail when it comes to managers in the sport. And all he's done is turn around this team to the point where they're two games over five hundred, They're a game behind in the division, and they're just a half game total as they have 37 wins to the same amount that the Brewers have. And now we may have to even think about the Reds being a threat in the NL Central based on the recent exploits of Ellie De La Cruz, although he's cooled off a little bit, but he's ignited a lot of passion, confidence, and I'm sure a lot of juice to that ball club and maybe even to the fan base for that matter. And you also have to couple the fact with a guy like Hunter Green, who's been up and down, but we know he's a live arm and is probably going to be one of the top pitchers in the National League sometime in the near future. But for this red team that, similar to Wyndham Clark, I didn't see this coming. And I'm sure the folks of Cincinnati in the Queen City didn't see this coming either. And then they have the Rockies coming in for three, which they could possibly pad onto this winning streak or at least keep themselves within a good arm's length away from the Milwaukee Brewers. So you got to give it up to what the Reds have done. And who knows with the way the Brewers have been playing, granted that they did sweep the Pirates over the weekend, but their ineptitude pretty much from the whole season from start to this point, you got to wonder whether or not the Reds could be a threat in the NL Central now that they've had this resurgence here over the last Not only a couple of weeks, but really since I would say maybe early May. Because who would ever thought that the Cincinnati Reds would have been not only just in any talk about the playoffs or maybe a pennant chase, but for the division. And then out west, break up the San Francisco Giants. Not only did they sweep the Dodgers in LA this weekend, they embarrassed them pretty much throughout the weekend. Now they won 7-5 on Friday, but a 15-0 shellacking, the worst Dodger home loss in their franchise's history, and top that off with a 7-3 win by the Giants. They've catapulted themselves over LA. I understand it's just by a half game, but still, the Dodgers, who were playing pretty well up until that time when they lost four out of six, when the Yankees came to town, and the series before that, who they lose to? I believe they lost to the Reds two out of three, and that also shows how the Reds have played well. But for the 
Dodgers, and maybe I'll just put this more on the Giants and the Dodgers at the moment, but for the Giants to play the way they have, and again, this is another team that, all right, they had some pieces there. We know about their starting rotation with Logan Webb, and people thought that this team was going to be a middling 85 tops as far as wins this year, and this was a team that won 172 years ago, but... I didn't see this coming to the point where not only would they sweep the Dodgers and they've actually played well against the Dodgers this year, but to just embarrass them and for the Dodgers to now go backwards here has been a big shock and just a revelation in the National League to the point where you've had almost a flip-flop or just an upending of sorts when it comes to the Central and the West, not so much in the East. But boy, you've had a lot happen here over the last week where you have to think whether or not these teams are going to be for real or at least be in the conversation throughout the summer. And look what they've done. Just a remarkable job by not only the Marlins, the Phillies, which you kind of expected, you figured they were going to turn around at some point, but give them some credit because they've been in a funk pretty much these first couple of months of the season. And then the Reds for what they've done, I'm not going to say the Brewers because a lot of people thought they were going to be at the top or near the top of the NL Central. The Pirates, we know, are going backwards. The Dodgers have taken now a couple of steps back. The Giants have been thrusted here. I know Arizona had that hiccup there against the Phillies and did win two out of three against the Guardians over the weekend. But yesterday they lost 12 to three. And then I have to throw them in the mix only because this is going to be a lost season. I'm not going to say it's over by any stretch. But this Met team, who lost 2 out of 3 to the Cardinals over the weekend, and the Cardinals, other than the Rockies, Royals, and Oakland A's, are probably one of the handful of worst teams in baseball. And in their building, after winning on Friday night, they could not win, including yesterday, which I know was puzzling Buck Showalter with some of the moves that he's made. I know a couple weeks ago I didn't get on him for the move of not putting Vladimir Guerrero on base where he got the double which took the lead there in the ninth inning in that middle game against the Mets a couple of weeks back but for Showalter to take out David Robertson and I understand his logic was to put Robertson in the eighth and then have Adovino face the heart of the order which is a little bit surprising there but I guess the slider and his success maybe going up against those right-handed hitters of Goldschmidt and Arenado would prove to be in the Mets favor but as it was At 7-7, after Robertson pitched an 8-pitch 8th inning and not coming back out for the ninth, to have Otto Vino come in there and he did retire Goldschmidt, but then Arenado, who bookended his day with a 2-run homer in the 1st, topped it off with a solo shot there in the ninth as the Cardinals leave City Field with 2 out of 3 and the back 2 against the Mets. And now the Mets go to Houston, and that's a team that I didn't talk, we didn't really get to the American League just yet, but the Astros have hit a little bit of a snag and a tailspin in their own right as they lost three games to the Reds over the weekend. So I didn't even mention that when we're talking about Cincinnati. So the Mets go to Houston where last year in the four games that they played against them, two down there and two here, they lost all four games. They're going to get Pete Alonso back, which that's a plus considering that his injury looked like it was going to be three to four weeks minimum and he's going to come off the IL and I would think be in the lineup tonight down at Minimade. But for the Mets right here, And this is a big-time juncture of their season. They're currently five games under 500. Forget about the division, because they're 12 and a half back. And I don't even know what they are on the wild card. But this week is going to be telling. 
because they have three in Houston, followed by a day off before three in Philadelphia. And I understand they beat up the Phillies over the last couple of years. They were, what, 5-14 and 14 against them, and they beat them up at City Field earlier this year with a sweep. But this is going to be their biggest test, and who knows how they're going to come out of this. Now, you would think if they can win four out of six, that would be great. Who knows? Now, you'll get to see, for the Met perspective, you'll have Scherzer pitch tonight in Houston, as well as the game on Saturday, or probably be Sunday with the day off, so you're not going to see Verlander in both days. But if I'm Buck Showalter, I'm pitching both Scherzer and Verlander, who will pitch tomorrow night and his first return back to Houston since being signed by the Mets. And knowing that his scheduled day considering who's going to pitch tomorrow, would be on Sunday, but with the day off, he's probably going to be pushed to next week. But I would pitch Verlander on Sunday, if you ask me, because the Mets, at this point, they cannot fool around. And I'm just going to leave it at that, because I could talk about the Mets ad infinitum, and I certainly don't want to get you guys nauseated by me just discussing the Mets, as I have been doing so over the past few weeks. But, sorry, that's just how it is when you're a Mets fan, and this season is about to be swept out to sea, and who knows, by this time next week, when we reconvene, It could be just that. Now, quickly with the American League, the Astros, like I mentioned, they've lost four in a row, and they even had the Angels leapfrog over them. Now, granted, they have a couple of games in hand, really three games when you think about it, because the Astros, or if my eyes are deceiving me, two games, they're 39-33, and where the Angels are now 41-33, and and can we take them seriously, considering that the Angels usually by this time are out of it? Now, it bodes well. If you're an Angel fan, knowing that Otani has performed well and at an MVP clip, not only just at the plate, but also on the pitching mound. But the Angels, I got to see a little bit more. Let's get to this time next month where we could really get a bird's eye view as to how the Angels will perform. But right now they're hanging around and they're doing well. Not that they're on a winning streak, but they put themselves in a position where they're in second place and currently six in the loss, but four and a half behind the Texas Rangers. There in the AL West. And then you have the Yankees, who also have hit the skids here. Not only did they get swept out of Fenway, including a day-night doubleheader yesterday, but they're now losers of four in a row. And for them to go up this week, where they have Seattle coming into their building, and even the Rangers. Now Seattle, they're a team that have been flip-flopping. They have been average at best, constituted by their 35-35 and record. But we know Seattle could put up some big pitching performances. The Yankees did win two out of three against the Mariners earlier this year. And I couldn't even tell you who the pitching matchups are as of this moment. But those are going to be some formidable opponents coming into Yankee Stadium this week. Especially with the Rangers coming in on the back end over the weekend. So the Yankees are currently nine in the loss, ten and a half back in the division. Now they're going to be fine as far as making the postseason. But we would think that the Yankees, with all of their injuries, I understand, but still with their resources and payroll, they should be a lot better than 39-33. And Aaron Judge is not walking through that door and is going to be penciled into that lineup anytime soon. So the Yankees have hit themselves a little bit of an abutment here. Even with the Red Sox and their four in a row at 37-35, they're still miles behind Tampa. And even with the pennant chase, or if you want to call it the wild card race, They still have a lot of work to do to get themselves back. But still, great job by the Red Sox over the weekend in winning those games, including not only just a sweep, but they've also won five out of six against the Yankees. Because if you remember, they won two out of three at the stadium a week ago. And that's what we have in baseball. And we need that because, let's face it, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about this baseball season, even with all the rule changes and the times of these games being under three hours and 
really a boon and a positive light to a sport that in a lot of areas throughout this country, unless you're in St. Louis, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, etc., losing its grip as far as just interest when it comes to the pastime of America going back to the 19th century. But even with that, the sport hasn't had a lot of juice. It hasn't had a lot of interesting storylines. Yes, we can talk about the Tampa Bay Rays, and not to rehash all that was said a couple of weeks ago, but knowing that the Reds have put themselves in the mix here, knowing that other teams, whether it has been the Orioles in the season that they've had so far, even the Angels for that matter, because with Otani and even Mike Trout, they make themselves relevant. Also the Giants, who in what they've done over the weekend, have put themselves in the NL West picture. And the Central, one team's got to come out of that. Maybe the Brewers, could it be the Reds? Can the Pirates get themselves off the deck, which I don't think they will. This could be the beginning of the end, as I mentioned. And even the Marlins. So you have some intrigue. And you have some teams that you didn't expect to be there, are there, at least as of right now. And that's what the sport needs. Because we all know Major League Baseball is top-heavy with the big payrolls of the Mets, Yankees, Dodgers, Red Sox, going down the line. So it's refreshing to see these teams from the Midwest or from the South or teams that have the big payroll, a la the Angels, be a part of the landscape when it comes to Major League Baseball and not be talked about as an afterthought. So that's something that at least we can hang our hopes as of right this second. And let's see next week where that leads into the following week, into July, 4th of July, etc. If these teams can continue to hang around, play well, and get themselves in position to maybe even make some trades at the deadline to see if they could capture a berth in October. Now as I lace up my high tops and go through the association as this is a big week for the league, as we know the draft is Thursday at the Barclays Center. We'll wait to see all the pomp and circumstance of a one Victor Wembanyama. A lot of people think he's the best prospect since LeBron James based on not only what we've seen here overseas being on those French teams, but for him to have the height, the skill set, just the overall potential that we may see from this kid. And I talked about this when the Spurs won the draft lottery, how we got to take a little precaution with a guy of his size. And not only that, but also of his just being slender. And I get it. When you're 7'6", you're not going to be built like Shaquille O'Neal or even Will Chamberlain for that matter. But... We've seen this time after time with players, whether your name is Sean Bradley. Even last year, when you look at a guy like Chet Holmgren, who in one of those summer league games, just trying to chase down a defender going up for a layup and tried to block his shot, he came down and fractured his foot and he was done for the year. And I'm not going to just attribute it to him being seven foot three and long or whatever, but when you have that type of body and you're limber, but at the same time, you're still not strong. And what I mean by that, not necessarily strong as far as just trying to push 3,000 pounds of weight and things of that nature, but these kids are still growing into their bodies. And even with them cutting and running and jumping and things of that nature, and if they're not in that type of shape to where their bodies could support a lot of the push-off and things of that nature, because look at a guy like Zion Williamson who's built like a tank, but he can't stay healthy. So there is a flip side to that, but we've seen with big men that tall, even Ralph Sampson for that matter, because we all know that when he came out of Virginia back in the 80s and what really hobbled him throughout 
the latter part of his career was a foot injury. And we even see that with Yao Ming later on in his career. So I get it. It's a thing where Jay Reels, you're targeting the big men, but especially guys who are well above seven feet. Not just a 6'10", 6'11", or 7-foot player. We're talking 7'3", 7'4", 7'5", in the case of Wembenyama. So we got to pump the brakes on whether or not he's going to have that transcendent, transformative type of career where when it's all said and done, he could be ranked in the top 10 of all-time great players. So before I could even start breaking out those pom-poms to think that Wembenyama is going to have this historic and just illustrious and legendary career, we're going to have to relax for a bit. And that's all I'm saying. I'm not wishing this kid any ill will whatsoever. And I'm not trying to predict that this kid is going to go down the path of injury after injury and he's never going to be healthy and we're not going to see his brilliance and even his dominance based on everything that we've seen, read, and heard about this kid. So I want to start off by saying that. So with the draft, and we know that after the first three picks, it's pretty much a toss-up. You would think that Scoot Henderson is going to be the number two pick, followed by Brandon Miller of Alabama, the number three pick. Scoot Henderson, of course, being in the G League. And for the record, Charlotte and Portland are your two and three teams that will select after San Antonio. And it'll be interesting because with Charlotte, Scoot Henderson being a point guard, if that's going to be the case, what are you going to do with LaMelo Ball? And then, of course, Portland's going to have just rumors swirling abound with everything coming out of that part of the country as far as Damian Lillard's concerned. I know we talked about this the other day a little bit. Maybe Miami will throw their hat in the ring to see if they could try to make the trade to bring Damian Lillard to South Beach. And I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of that here over the course of the next couple of days and leading into the draft day on Thursday night. But for Wembenyama, I know he's going to be the one that's highlighted from pillar to post. He's going to be just showcased. And a lot of people are going to think that this is going to be the next big thing. And it's way too early to tell. And let's hope that he has that dominant career and could be transcendent. And a guy that, when it's all said and done, will have that type of career, which will put him in the pantheon of the Bill Russells. And I just want to talk about big men. But... A guy that's going to be up there with MJ, LeBron, Russell, Wilt, Magic, etc. But as we all know, it is way, way, way too early to even forecast that. And you had some wheeling and dealing over the weekend, in particular yesterday with the Phoenix Suns. And for the Suns to acquire Bradley Beal, now the deal isn't finalized. What's been put out there is the Wizards are going to trade Bradley Beal to the Suns for Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, a bunch of second round picks, and pick swaps. Now the reason why the deal isn't finalized is because there may be a third team that's involved only to see if they could try to get Chris Paul to go to that third team, which would in all likelihood be a contending team, just to avoid the whole buyout scenario. Because I still think he's owed... 30-some-odd million in the last year of his contract, but I think 18 of that is guaranteed off the top of my head. So the Wizards, along with the Suns, are going to try to see if they can incorporate a third team, which would be that contending team. Who that team is off the top of my head, I don't know. I know the one team that could use his services, but I don't know if I would touch with a 10-foot pole would be the Celtics because they need a point guard in the worst way. But that's a whole other set of encyclopedias, which I'll get to maybe when we get closer to the whole NBA free agency and see which direction that Chris Paul may head to. But for this trade, 
when it happens, if I'm a Suns fan or an NBA fan, I don't like it. And the reason why I don't is because you already have a guy in the team that can shoot the lights out of the ball and plays the same position, and that's Devin Booker. Now, does this mean you're going to make Devin Booker as your point guard? Does this mean campaign becomes your point guard or de facto point guard where we know he's more of a guy that's going to come off the bench? And when you have two scorers like that to play the same position, can it work? Obviously, you can make anything work. But it's going to be overkill. And then, oh yeah, I forgot. You also have Kevin Durant on the team who's also going to need the ball. And we all know, although it's not his team, but because of his track record, because of his Hall of Fame worthy career, he's going to be a guy that's going to want the ball in the final seconds of a game. And just because you have a million scorers on your team doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a guarantee that you're going to be in discussion for an NBA championship. Yes, will they be at the end of the day? Of course. But to me, that's no guarantee. Just like there was no guarantee once they got Kevin Durant that I thought, oh boy, the Suns, they're on a fast track to the NBA title. Check those receipts because I did not say that in the least even once Durant got there and even if he was healthy and we know that he turned his ankle during the warm-ups there before a regular season game was in late March. But I'm not buying if I'm a Suns fan and I get it. A lot of this is Matt Ishbia flexing his new owner muscles to try to bring in an all-star type squad and kudos to him for trying to do that but he should know and maybe even poke around to his fellow owner brethren to say this is something I'm thinking about doing would this be wise and of course not that the owners are going to tell him yes trade for Bradley Beal but the point of the matter is there is some decorum that goes into being an owner and having the GM in this case James Jones do his job But Ispia, because he's a young guy and he's got his new shiny toy, so he wants to flex and think that, oh, I could bring in anybody, sign anybody, we're going to get a title in the next few years. And then, when it all goes to nothing, if they don't win a title, then he's going to have to bottom out his roster and start over again. And who knows if that's going to happen. That certainly remains to be seen. But I wouldn't have gone that direction if I was Ispia. And to me, this is all on him. This isn't James Jones. So, yes, by bringing in Beal, fantastic. And you're going to have three guys that are going to make a zillion dollars, as we all know with the way the cap is going to be, with the whole second apron, with the team is going to be pretty much filled or littered with minimum guys that are going to get paid the minimum based on the new CBA that's going to take place after this season. So, if you're a Suns fan, I'm sure you're ecstatic. You may be jumping up and down, but I'm going to say it one more time. This doesn't necessarily mean... Start the parade route in downtown Phoenix because come this time next year, the Suns are going to be NBA champions. I don't believe that in the least. And I didn't even mention that the team has no depth. So unless these guys are going to log 40 minutes throughout the course of an entire postseason and act like three Terminators, that will probably propel them to winning a title. But as we all know, that's not going to be the case. And then a couple other things. We got to talk about John Morant. He gets a 25-game suspension handed down by Adam Silver in the NBA. No surprise. Now, I understand that you could look at this from a conspiracy theory perspective when it comes to Morant earning money, earning that super mega max contract when it comes to him getting a first-team All-NBA nod or a second All-NBA nod where if he were to meet those thresholds that he would be able to get that money. And for him to get 25 games, I believe the minimum you'd have to play is 65 games. I think that's it. I should know that off the top of my head. I don't think it's 60. I think it's a little bit north of that. 
And let's say if he even played in every game after his suspension next year, that means he would top off at 57. So even if he played at an MVP clip and would be eligible to be a first-team All-NBA nod, he won't get it. So there are some people that would think that. To me, I could care less. I understand all NBA nods are nice and it's something to debate and discuss, all that. But at the end of the day, I'm sure... First and foremost, it's important for John Morant to get himself right. Let's do that, and hopefully he's in the process of doing that as I'm currently speaking. But the 25 games, is it just right? Is it too much, too little? I thought maybe he'd get around this, 20 to 25. I thought 40, half a season or 41 games would have been too much. He didn't commit a crime. He didn't go to jail. He wasn't charged of anything. And yes, I understand he used reckless and poor judgment on two occasions, especially after the first one where he had to sit down with Adam Silver and he pretty much lied to his face about getting help, about doing the right thing. And even in his interviews, what he said that, yes, I got to focus on me, so on and so forth. And we all know he didn't do that. And I understand it's the people you hang around which certainly aren't going to help. And that's something that he's going to have to evaluate and think that. And I'm sure he has been doing that on whether or not he's going to either disconnect himself with certain people or is going to have to temper it to the point where he cannot have this, I'm not going to say gangster lifestyle because that's not what it is, but you know, you can't be carrying around guns and putting in videos and trying to floss and flex that way. We all know that that is just an awful optic and you represent a league that is the antithesis of gun laws and we've seen that with Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich and going down the line. But... 25 games, I thought it was just about right because 20 would be a quarter of the season. You could say maybe even 20 would have probably been better and that's why I mentioned the 25 because of the regulations when it comes to the All-NBA nods. But he's going to miss more than a quarter of the season and you can only hope that he gets himself rehabilitated, he gets himself on track and gets ready for a season which is going to be a big one not only for him but for that organization. Because yes, they've done well in the regular season the last two years as I've chronicled. And yes, they fizzled out in the playoffs both times. I understand Morant two years ago or not this past year, but the year before that with the knee injury and he couldn't play against Golden State. Okay, fine. But what was the excuse this time around? And yes, I understand they didn't have Steven Adams and Brandon Clark. Okay, but injuries are part of the game. So let's see what Morant's going to do here moving forward as we hope he gets himself back on the beam and on a straight and narrow to where he could put this all behind him and get himself focused on himself and, of course, for the upcoming season, which is still months away. And then you have Michael Jordan. The only reason why I bring him up is because he did sell his portion, the majority stake of the Charlotte Hornets, for $3 billion to a group led by Gay Plotkin and Rick Schnall, who had a minority stake in the team. And the only reason why I bring that up, no, he didn't get the full $3 billion, but he did put... 30 million of his own money 13 years ago and he still has a minority share so it's not as if he doesn't have a say or he's not a part of the board when it comes to I guess certain deals or the comings and goings or happenings of the Hornet franchise but he walks away with about three quarters of a billion dollars as if he needed more money as if he listen he's got money to burn and his grandkids 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 couldn't even spend all that money but again you put in 30 and you get close to 750 back That's why 
he is a shrewd businessman and that's why he is one of the most influential athletes that this country has ever produced. Based a lot of it on his wondrous and legendary talent, as we all know. But even as owner, as we've seen, which has not been home to write about, that we could honestly say that he's flopped. Yes, they made a couple of playoff appearances where they went meekly out into the offseason. And it's not to pile on Jordan by any stretch, but we know, to say it nicely, his tenure as majority owner of the Charlotte Hornets has been underwhelming. Let's just put it that way. But even as underwhelming as it's been, he certainly recouped that money times 50. And maybe even more than that when I do the math off the top of my head. So that's what got there with Jordan as he still has a stake in the team but does not have the full or at least the majority stake. But he still comes out smiling and in roses with that transaction that took place late last week. And the NHL draft, which is usually right after the NBA draft, this time around, it's going to be the 28th, 29th of next week. So we won't talk about that. Obviously, you have a player that's going to be at the top of the draft and the one, Connor Bedard, where a lot of people think he could be that next player. The guy that could be in the running for a generational player, a la Connor McDavid, which he is currently right now of the Edmonton Oilers. But... NHL draft, which is next week, on a lesser degree from the NBA draft. But for those who are wondering when the NHL draft is, it's not for another nine days. And we'll talk a little bit about that on next week's podcast, which is when we'll reconnect. Because as I mentioned at the top, I will be taking off this coming Thursday. I'll be in the Caribbean. I'll talk about that a little bit on the start of next week's podcast. But as always, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for carving out some time to listen to what it is to have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. Your participation is never, ever taken for granted. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to hit me up, and one thing I will say, people, yes, I won't be on the airwaves this coming week, but for any updates that's happening in the sports universe, you could go to my YouTube page, at J Reels on YouTube. You can also follow me on my other social media platforms, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, but you'll see me a lot on YouTube and on Instagram, TikTok. So please follow me there. And if you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, or suggestions, you could do it the old fashioned way, whether by DM on those aforementioned platforms, but also by email at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Whatever you want to send, just please do so and I'll be more than happy to follow up. And in closing, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in com slash the J Reels podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, we'll go 100% to the production, upkeep of the website, the equipment, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA, talking sports pretty much since birth. And I will continue to talk sports as long as I'm alive and breathing. I'll continue to put forth this podcast twice a week. Continue to do the extra legwork to bring the guest. Continue to do the extra legwork to make this experience for you. Into this microphone, through your earbuds or speakers. That much more pleasurable, enjoyable, entertaining, informative. With fire, passion, fury, energy. With my thoughts, opinions, analysis, feelings, critique, praise on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. 
From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.